0: The year was 2018. I had written enough content to generate enough work, at least two books. So it made sense that I'd at least put that content in one place. So if people were searching for me, they'd find my content, not just all over the web, but in one place. I don't know how many people that I had this discussion with in my tribe, my personal board of directors, including my graphic designer and website designer, Summer Galvez. And most people were like, oh, so you wanna have a blog? And I was like, no, I don't wanna have a blog. Blogging to me is very different from what I'd been doing. You see, I'd signed on as a contributor to Black Enterprise about 18 months before. And so all of that content that I'd written had been published nationally and gotten 50 million viewers across all of their platforms. As hardly a blogger. No shade to bloggers. It's just not what I was doing. So I wanted this web presence to aggregate all of that information and any time that I might have been in the news media. But something else was missing. I'd had some other conversations about the idea of my content being enough for a couple of books with some other friends that were in my tribe, my personal board of directors. One of them said to me that he could probably help me get in front of publishers. I said, well, great. So I immediately started to write an outline and a summary of the first book. But still, something was missing from my website. And I didn't think that I could put a book out just yet. I wanted to grow my audience. And then I remembered a conversation that I had with Jamie Roberts. Do you remember the comedian that I had on? The radio executive pretty early on? Mind you, I just named some people who've all been on. Summer Galvez, Uh, you know, Jamie Roberts. Yeah, so Jamie had told me at this dinner where I met Jackie Reed formally earlier in 2018 that if I ever wanted to do a podcast, to call him because he had some good advice and tips. You see, he's the one that encouraged Jackie Reed and Joy Ann Reed to do Read This, Read That. And he also gave them some tips on how to make it pretty successful there were other people in that room that day that were considering podcast. I wasn't at the time, but it occurred to me a podcast may be the best way to grow my audience and expand my reach pretty quickly. The other thing that a podcast could do was hit reset on my brand. If you remember, I did a preamble to the first episode which aired a year ago today. October 23rd, 2018. In the preamble, I explained that my value proposition would be the very basis of the podcast. I thrive at the intersection of tech, culture, and business. So I wanted to begin to unravel my story through the stories of my friends who sit at the intersection of tech, culture, and business. That was the birth of the Culture Soup podcast. Just recently, you heard me expound even more on the name of the podcast. The Culture Soup comes from one of my keynote speeches where I talk about social media as Culture Soup. And for most of the episodes that you've heard, all 60-plus of them in the last year, we've kicked things off with a Culture Soup moment which means that we looked at what was going on online and it teed up the conversation so that my guests can tell their stories and how we actually met. So over the course of the last year, Jamie Roberts turned into my podcast mentor and he challenged me to do at least 52 weeks. As a radio executive, he would know that's the best way to rise in the ranks. And Jamie was right. As of May 2019, the Culture Soup podcast soared to number six on Apple Podcast Business Business News, which is their old categories, and stayed there for nine weeks straight. A couple other weeks transpired, maybe three or four, and again, we were at number eight, on Apple Podcast, Business Business News. This little podcast, which is a labor of love. I really don't get much revenue from it. I could, but I just don't. <laughs> has turned into an awesome platform to share my stance on all things tech, culture and business. And it's also been a great place to connect and reconnect with the friends who've made me who I am. And guess what? I haven't repeated a friend once until today. You see, the first anniversary of the Culture Soup podcast corresponds with the 50th anniversary of Opera in America. Not the exact same day, but definitely the same year. You will also recall that the first episode that I shared was with Aretha Franklin's favorite soprano, Audrey Dubois Harris, who herself is an opera singer. Audrey returned for a special bonus episode at Christmas to share her Christmas CD. But other than that, regular episodes have only included new names each and every week. As you know, music is culture. I always say that culture is that thing that makes your squad a squad. Well, I have had the honor to be a part of an opera squad for the last two years as a member of the National Board of Opera America. And I am so impressed with the digital campaign that Dan Cooperman, the chief development officer And his team, the marketing team, have put together this year to celebrate 50 years in opera. It is the most inclusive digital campaign I've seen in a while. And definitely the first to come out of this industry and this genre, opera. So without further ado, join me in celebrating the one year anniversary of the Culture Soup podcast. Yes, we got that registered trademark before our year anniversary, so we're happy about that. But I'd like to introduce and reintroduce to you the CEO of Opera America,
1: Mark Scorka.
2: There you are.
0: Hello.
1: You were you a star yesterday. I heard last evening that everyone just loved hearing from you.
0: Oh, wow, that's good. I got a yeah, lot of great
1: feedback. They said it was great.
2: Good, good, good. I'm glad I could um, engage in
1: that way. And you have an incredible, you have a really great gift. I even see it around the board table. Of you, you just have a a very succinct way of using words that convey deep meaning. Oh. Um, and I I really love listening to you because the words activate me.
2: Oh wow, that's deep, Mark. That's high praise. Thank you. I mean it. I really mean it. Thank you so much. So I want to talk about the 50th anniversary of Opera America and 60 mm-hmm. years in in opera. And can we talk about Meet Opera?
1: Sure. Um, the um, <clears throat> you know so yeah, o- Opera America was started in 1970 in Seattle, and that's of course where we're going back for our 50th anniversary conference in May. But what is remarkable about the last half century is the way American opera has really come into its own. Mm-hmm. So our goal in celebrating our anniversary, which really is not a birthday party for us, our goal is to really get the narrative out there about the incredible journey of American opera over the last five decades. Um, it is a period of time when two-thirds, more than two-thirds of our opera companies have been established since 1970 most of the young artists training programs. The entire American opera repertoire, with a few exceptions, is uh, a repertoire developed since 1970. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we had this imported European art form and now it is an American art form and it was old-fashioned 19th century and in foreign languages and now it's an art form that really resonates with the world we live in, in English, dealing with subjects that stir all of us. Mm-hmm. So. That's the narrative we really want to communicate across the country.
2: Okay, awesome. You know, I'm glad you explained that. And I've heard this sitting in board meetings, 50 years of opera. And then I wondered, I was like, you know, opera should have been here before that. We just didn't have an established opera house. Is that right?
1: Well, you know, opera opera has been here since uh, colonial times. Right and uh, the first American opera is credited as having been composed in Philadelphia in the in the 1760s. What's interesting is there's quite a history of opera in New Orleans. Just keep in mind that New Orleans was French, mm-hmm. and um, there was this kind of touring, and you know, the touring effort that connected France to the French Caribbean to New Orleans, mm-hmm. and even. Uh, you know, it's it, it, it's a wonderful story. Mozart's librettist is the, the man who wrote the, the text for Mozart's opera, The Marriage of Figaro, Don Giovanni and Cosi Ventute mm-hmm. moved to New York uh, in 1799 and he op- first opened a grocery store uh, but then uh, he established the Italian department at Columbia University and in the first part of the 1800s Lorenzo da Ponte, which is his name, brought some touring companies to the United States to perform Italian opera and perform Mozart operas here in New York. So there's a rich history from before 1970, but it really didn't, uh, opera didn't take hold as a growing American art form until after World War II.
2: We're there is. We're, we're cutting the
1: ribbon on our 50th anniversary celebration. It takes place, in our, our anniversary year is 2020, but we're gearing up and we're doing a launch today, um, announcing many of the activities that we're doing in Opera Hall of Fame. We're doing public presentations and receptions in our 16 founding cities, but we're launching a social media campaign to make sure that as many people as possible understand how vibrant opera is today. Mm -hmm. And we hope some of them will go to the opera for the first time. We hope some of them will go back to the opera after a long pause. And we hope some of them will go back again this week even if they went last week.
2: Right, so I got to preview some of the exciting uh, content that will be released. And by the time this airs, it would be out there. But I like the way (laughs) we have shown how this really isn't your grandmother's opera anymore.
1: Don't you think? It's not. And uh, in my remarks later on today, you'll hear me talk about four operas, for instance, from this summer, uh, Blind Injustice, uh, Central Park Five, Fire Shut Up In My Bones, and Blue, four operas that tell um, the African-American experience through different lenses that I think are emotionally stirring for anyone and also awaken our sense of justice in this country four operas that are hardly your grandmother's operas, but are really about the world we live in today. And that's what American opera has become. There are plenty of new operas that are that are love stories in a modern style, but there are also a whole lot of operas today that tell resonant, powerful, contemporary stories.
2: Yeah, that's, that's so amazing. And, and unless you've been lately, you probably wouldn't know. And I'm also seeing that Opera isn't just happening in the opera
1: house anymore, which is awesome. Yeah. That's right. People. A lot of our opera companies now have either what they call second stages, like alternative places they go, or a number of them are doing opera in what's you know in found spaces. Like, what's the what's the best place to do this piece? Is it the opera house or is it a park? Is it the opera house or is it a basketball arena? Uh, Is it an opera house or is it an industrial loft downtown that would be really great for this piece? So our opera companies are still doing, you know, traditional opera in the opera house, and we love that repertoire, but they're also doing all of these new pieces in different places so that opera is more of the community and of the city than it's ever been before.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. And you know what? Um, If we can talk about the program that you have for Lebritists of Color... That's exciting.
1: Absolutely, and we just had a grant panel uh, yesterday. As a matter of fact, while we were in the middle of listening to all this quiet music, there were some people in the it, out in the lobby, and I had to go shush them. <laughs> I was so embarrassed when I Um <laughs> So you know, one, and it, this follows on on the footsteps of another project. So we started several years ago a program called Opera Grants for Female Composers because Opera America over the years has given out about 15 million dollars to support the creation and production of new opera but until a few years ago only about 5% of those pieces were by women so we decided we would start a grant program that was really focused on supporting the work of women and that has really brought forward so many important composers and we're thrilled that they're winning awards and on the opera stage today but we also noticed that there weren't enough people of color, uh, represented on the opera stage in terms of composers and librettists and the stories they might tell. We have a new program called Idea Opera Grants, and the Idea Opera Grants are designed to identify the most promising composers and librettists of color who are new to opera. They may not be youngsters out of college, they may be established artists, but they're new to opera. And we uh, had our first uh, panel yesterday, we had applications for this, and we—it was the first year. We had no idea how many applications we would receive. We had 64 applications
2: That's from awesome. teams of
1: composers and librettists of color. We only had money to support two of those teams, yeah, but right. we had 64 applications, and we could easily have funded eight or ten of them because of the the quality of the work and, and and the quality of the stories that were being told uh... so we hope they'll come back next year we're to keep this program going and again it's a way to bring more points of view and more stories to the opera stage
2: you know um... The work that you're doing is heavy lifting when it comes to being more inclusive. We just talked about the stories that are being told, the storytellers that are being that are actually telling the stories. Um, you're doing work inside the house as well. Yesterday when I spoke to the marketers from across Opera America and all of the companies <clears throat> in the U.S., and I think there might have been some international
1: groups in yeah. Canada or yeah. some others.
2: We were talking about how to market more inclusively, but also how that experience offline needs to translate to what you share online. And, you know, on its face, it sounds like, okay, this is pretty simple. We just reach a new audience. But when you bring them in, the experience has to make people feel like they belong. So there was a, a point at which we talked about how, LA Opera. And I think um, there was one other opera house we went to where we saw Satya Graha. And they encouraged people to leave their devices on. And they gave us hashtags to share. And I shared with the group that this is very much an insight for the new generation, which is absolutely multicultural, Um, millennials and centennials. This is the way we communicate and we use our devices. But that there are still some houses that you have the big voice
1: that comes on, turn off all cell devices. You know, it's
2: not very welcoming, and it's kind of
1: harsh. No, oh, you're, you're poking me in the eye. The, um, <laughs> it so drives me crazy where a voice will come over and say, um, if you leave the auditorium, you cannot regain access. Do not take any pictures. It's strictly yeah. prohibited. Turn off your cell phones, and have a nice evening. Yes. So that, you know, all of these commands about what is prohibited and then have a nice evening. There are a couple of companies that have really done that much better where they sort of yeah. give some basic guidance, but, you know, it's in a cheerful voice. I do think that our opera companies are beginning, just beginning to examine that entire audience experience uh, because so many people are newcomers to opera and the the rather... Um, rule-bound way way of attending, uh, where you may do this, you may not do that. You know, unfortunately, that's just not the way a lot of our new audience members live their lives. Right. On the one hand, you want to respect the performance because it is a virtuosic experience. Exactly. And the experience benefits from your focused attention. And on the other hand, we want people to enjoy it in a way that's consistent with the lives they lead. So, you know, it's a really big topic. I I won't say which major opera company recently uh, asked us for some information because a super discussion is going on right now about whether people can bring their drinks into the auditorium. And of course, you know, it has been forbidden for years, but now many of our major companies and lots of our mid-sized and smaller companies allow you to bring the drinks into the theater. And I don't think I'm breaking a confidence here, but I recently had lunch with Renee Fleming, and I was chatting with this great American soprano, greatest of her generation, and I said, Renee, if someone's holding a glass of wine in their hand, they won't be able to applaud when you're done singing. If you mind.
2: <laughs> That's a good point. And,
1: and she said, I want people to have a good time. Yeah. So it was lovely to hear her understand that it's the overall experience it will get people to come back again and again and again.
2: What's next, cup holders? <gasps> Clutch the pearls?
1: <laughs> I don't know, you know, can I bring a hot dog in? I don't I know.
2: know, wow. Well, you know, it was interesting because when you talk about being more inclusive, and I love the spirit that everyone has, everybody leans in, but when you start to talk about those issues and those items that really need to be considered, You can see where people begin to, you know, either recoil or they're leaning in. And these are the conversations we want to have. So we we raised this yesterday, and one of the company marketing directors said, you know, I've had a whole group from Asia come in, and they not only brought their small devices, but they had iPads. Yep. And they were holding them up and yep. so that's the way they do the opera. Yep. And when I explained to her, look, you have to understand They had camera phones before we did in the United States. So that's even more an appendage for them than it is for us. And then someone on the other side of the screen here is let's wait for the firefighter or, or whatever to go by.
1: We have a fire. we have a firehouse just down the street, but uh,
2: We're in New York. Okay, great. Yay, first responders. Okay. So, and then someone on the other side of uh, the issue in the room, I don't want people bringing devices in here. There's a reason for that because, well, and there's nothing wrong with what she said. Mm-hmm. She's wanting it to enjoy the show.
1: You know, it, so it's a
2: this is the rub.
1: It is, you know, and, and look, I'm over 21. So I, I remember, you know, the days when there were no devices whatsoever. Um, and, you know, think about it. So you have a, Virtuosic soprano <clears throat> who is singing a sustained high note that's very beautiful and quiet, and yes. the athleticism of it's amazing. And a wine glass drops, you know, a <laughs> on the floor. You don't want that. No. And if your if your cell phone is on, so you can you know be sharing while you're there, and it, well, the cell phone goes off or your alarm goes off. Right. Um, so it, it it is going to be a balance between respecting the virtuosity of the performance, and the magic of the moment, that right. magic of the moment, where you really do want to be emotionally and physically present for the magic of that yes. moment. And you also want to be comfortable. So it, it, it's it's not an easy discussion to have, and, and one can argue either side of it. When I go to the Metropolitan Opera these days, and I'm sitting upstairs at curtain call time, when the Artists are coming out to bow. I look down into the main orchestra level, and there must be 500 cell phones taking pictures. It looks like the Milky Way at night. It's wonderful.
2: Well, you know what? I, it's visual, and what a great opportunity to reach more people. If you're able to do that within the bounds of keeping the
1: integrity of the performance. Absolutely, absolutely and you know and part of making people feel welcome is that they are not shushed, yelled at, frowned at, that no, somehow know, we, no. <laughs> we figure out how to share what might be the best conditions for enjoying the opera and not make people feel that they are um, completely hampered by the rules of the opera house.
2: Right, right, right. Well, you know what? I'm going to shift gears just for a second. We lost one of the most beautiful voices in opera recently. And, you know, this is kind of poignant because this is the (laughs) one-year anniversary of my show, coming up on the 23rd and my first show um, actually included Audrey Dubois-Harris who was Mm -hmm. Franklin's favorite soprano Mm -hmm. and she mentioned that one of her most um, influential voices was Jesse Norman.
1: Yeah, a great singer and uh, I had the privilege of speaking with her just a few months ago Um, and when i was a a youngster it was in the it would have been in the late 70s early 80s I'd have to actually look it up she did two programs at tanglewood in the summertime and i drove up from new york to see them and they were just transporting yeah. uh and i was able to tell her that i have these memories of these two performances of hers that still stick with me as highlights of of my opera going life i was really privileged to be able to share that with her and to hear her take that in. She was a wonderful artist, um, great sensitivity, magnificent natural voice that was then trained superbly. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I always, what I loved about Jessie Norman was her presence on stage. There was a profound dignity to her presence on stage. It was just captivating. And you know, um, one of the things, when I give a speech about why I love opera. One of the reasons I love opera is that our, our world is filled with images of young skinny people yes. and the the normal or what we hold out as the ideal is young and skinny. What I love about opera is that there's a different sense of beauty a different and, sense. and in opera the beauty comes from within it's about the sound that is within you that you um, allow to come out. The instrument is your body. And certainly there are plenty of singers who have plenty of curves, but when they open their mouths and share what is within, Mm -hmm. they are beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I would say about Jessie Norman that she of course was a large woman, we know that, but she became beautiful on stage, captivating, mesmerizing, and again that that different standard of beauty that is opera. And I, I really love that about our art form.
2: You know, um, one of the clips that stands out to me of Jesse Norman is when she's on stage with Kathleen Battle mm-hmm. and they're singing a take on a Negro spiritual. Yeah, yep. <laughs> And it's pretty funny.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I don't think that people outside of opera understand how many emotions besides, you know, love and romance and drama that you can actually see and convey as an artist. And yeah. that clip is actually so very funny.
1: I know, I know exactly which clip you're talking <laughs> about. I you, do. And of course, Kathleen Battle, another spectacular clip. Uh,
2: <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, Mark, is there anything you want to share with us? We're going to Houston here uh, next month. Yeah. Our board meeting. We're going
1: to Houston and we're going to see a wonderful performance. We're going to see a wonderful performance. It's gotten rave reviews in Europe. Um, but you know, and um, uh, the one thing we haven't talked about is that our social media campaign oh, um, yes. is Meet Opera.
2: Yes, yes, yes. Because
1: <laughs> we want people to meet Opera. Maybe it's for the first time. Uh, maybe it's once again after many years. Or maybe it's Meet American Opera or meet Baroque opera, or meet opera in Madison, meet opera in Houston, meet opera in the movie theater where you watch the Med HD transmission, right. and, and then, you know, and then once you're there, meet people at the opera, <laughs> um, that it is, it is a social experience. So uh, we really encourage people to take a leap of faith, meet opera, meet people at the opera, and we think you'll come back for more.
2: I'm so glad you did that. <laughs> meet opera people hashtag meet opera and uh, just be prepared because my timeline is going to be full
1: of it fantastic!
2: it's been a pleasure thanks for coming on your second time on the Culture Soup podcast
1: it is always a pleasure to talk to you I I can't wait to see you soon awesome see
2: you soon Mark bye for now bye -bye.
0: what an exciting conversation with Mark Skorka CEO of Opera America thank you so much Mark listen y'all if you're not familiar with opera this is a great time to check it out and you can do it online first on social media use the hashtag #MeetOpera and see the conversation see the campaign the digital video is just amazing i'm so very proud of this campaign also coming up on thursday i will be in austin texas at the texas conference for women I will be participating with Mary Kay. Thank you so much, Mary Kay. I will be there to speak first thing Thursday morning at 7 a.m. at the breakfast. It's for entrepreneurs and women who wanna talk about personal branding. I'll be interviewing the Culture Soup Podcast guest. If you remember, she was a part of the Women's History Month series, the CMO of Mary Kay. Cheryl Atkins Green yes we'll be having a fireside chat about personal branding the Mary Kay way you know um I'm reading her book right now and it is called uh Mary Kay on people management and it's um really important to take a look at that because Mary Kay did the thing I mean she did the thing before there was social media I always say that social media actually is supposed to amplify your brand and your brand is that offline experience that people have with you, your products, your services, and yourself. So you want to hear this conversation. If you're going to be in Austin at the Texas Conference for Women, meet us at 7 a.m. for this breakfast. Then later that day at 11 o'clock, I'll be emceeing. A session that's all about rebooting your career in the second half. Yes, that's right. Many people are beginning to think, you know what? I've been working, but for who? (laughs) Working for everybody else but yourself. And I'm not talking about entrepreneurship. I'm talking about owning your career, your journey, your brand, and rebooting in time to make your dreams come true. Or do something you've always wanted to try. Reskilling, repositioning, and getting after it. That's right. Texas Conference for Women, Austin, Texas, on Thursday. Thursday, I'm taking a break, y'all. We're going to have another Throwback Thursday. And you know what? I am going to start with one of the most popular... Culture CultureSoup podcast episodes. Wonder which one it is? You'll have to tune in. Up next, I am doing a mini tour of HBCUs, and I'm heading back to Jackson, Tennessee, where the mighty dragons of Lane College reside. That's right. I will be there to speak to student leaders about how to get their personal brand in shape now and how to assemble and activate their personal board of directors i.e their tribe look shout out to dr logan hampton for having the vision and the understanding that it's never too early to get your leaders ready for this competitive environment environment that we're all a part of in this digital age then i will be heading to wilberforce ohio to visit Wilberforce University. It's homecoming week, y'all, and they have a lineup of activities leading to the big game. I'll be a part of their entrepreneurship effort, and I will be on a panel talking about the importance of the HBCU in a black entrepreneur's journey. I'll also have the opportunity to coach some young leaders on the spot. Before I leave, shout out to Dr. Tasia Bradley, who is the uh, chief innovation officer. That's right. Executive vice president and chief innovation officer. And a shout out to executive vice chair, John Miller, the CEO of Denny's. You'll remember him from one of the episodes. He's the one who connected me with Dr. Bradley. I'm so excited to be headed to Wilberforce. See you soon. I won't be with you this Thursday. We'll have a throwback Thursday and we'll play one of the most popular episodes in honor of our anniversary. And so I'll see you again next week. Find us online at theculturesoup.com, on Instagram and Twitter at The Culture Soup, and on Facebook at The Culture Soup Podcast. Until next week. The Culture Soup Podcast is a production of No Silos Communications, LLC. The Culture Soup Podcast is a registered trademark of No
1: Silos Communications, LLC.